Roll20 partners up with the DMs Guild. We're going to talk about Level Up 5e's node system for running Dungeon Delves. We are going to follow up with a couple of tips that we talked about last week, including revealing NPC archetypes, some thoughts that have come back from you guys in comments about revealing NPC archetypes. We're going to talk more about what a near-perfect 10 D&D game looks like. In fact, I have an example of one, I'm very happy to say. And we're going to dive into that topic a little bit more. And we're going to cover the remainder of the June 2022 Patreon questions, all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. If you like this show and the work that I do, you can help me out by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. The link to become a patron is in the show notes below. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material and previews of upcoming upcoming videos and upcoming products. But most of all, they get to help me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So yeah, kind of a quiet news week. But one of the things that came up was that Roll20, let's go to our notes here, that Roll20 started a partnership with the DMs Guild. And this got a lot of attention and it sort of like led to like, well, what does that mean? Like Wizards of the Coast bought D&D Beyond. What does it mean that Roll20 is partnering with the DMs Guild? And I think, so what it actually means is that content creators, people who are writing content for the DMs Guild can create Roll20 products, Roll20 bundles that they sell on the DMs Guild, but they run in Roll20. They, they, they link over to Roll20. And that's really all that it means. As far as I can tell, and I was listening to my friends Sean and Tay on Mastering Dungeons talking about this, and they really hit the nail on the head, which is they're pretty sure Wizards of the Coast was hardly involved in this at all. That Wizards of the Coast has an agreement with one bookshelf who runs the DMs Guild about what they're able to run there. And one bookshelf probably made the deal with Roll20. I'm sure Wizards of the Coast had to bless it, but I bet you they weren't involved that much. And they, they basically said like, so you're, our material is still in control of Roll20. Of, 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 the DMs go, they said, yeah. And it said, okay. And they already have a bunch of licensed stuff over on roll 20. So they're not worried about that. So it seems like it's a great situation for people who like to buy products from the DMs guild and use roll 20, which is most people that are using a virtual tabletop online are using roll 20. So this seems like a good thing. Does it mean anything else? I don't think so. Does it mean I, I have a, a good friend who said he's absolutely convinced that wizards of the coast is going to buy roll 20. And I, I, I seriously doubt it. I would, I would, I bet him, I bet him, a, I bet him a book. I said, you, I will send you a book signed. I was wrong from Sly Flourish. And I want a book in return signed. I was wrong if I'm right. And it's a two year bet. So we got to wait until two years to see if that pays off. I don't think they are because there's so much stuff in Roll20, Wizards of the Coast doesn't want. And then, and, and they don't, I don't think they need it. They already have all the accounts from D&D Beyond. They're going to build a VTT in D&D Beyond. I would be very shocked if they don't have a virtual tabletop in D&D Beyond. So I don't think Wizards of the Coast needs another virtual tabletop. I think they have everything they need. And I think buying it would also be very expensive because Roll20 is very popular and makes a fair bit of money from what I heard. I heard their revenue doubled in one year or something like that. So I don't think, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think they're going to bother to buy it. But it is interesting. So it was, it was a good, interesting piece of news for people who use Roll20 and buy stuff from, from the DMs Guild. This seems like a fine, it seems like a fine way to go. It's also very good for content producers who want to create content in the DMs Guild that they sell on Roll20. But I don't think it means anything more than that. I would not, I would not expect it to lead down the path of Wizards of the Coast buying Roll20. I think that's too expensive for stuff they don't need. 
but businesses have made weird choices before, so who could say? The other thing that I thought was interesting is Level Up 5e, and I think it was Paul Hughes who who worked on this, wrote, they're, they're working on a new book called The Dungeon Delver's Guide. I think this is going to be a popular book that hits on something that a lot of people are interested in, which is, you know, more codified, a more codified set of rules and systems for running particular types of the game. If you look up the Level Up Trials and Treasure book, one of the three books that Level Up 5e published by N-World, this is one of the three books that they published that's sort of a replacement for the core books for D&D. The Trials and Treasure is sort of like the Dungeon Master's Guide, and it has a whole thing about running exploration. It's got steps for exploration, it's got skill challenge kind of things, it's got all that sort of stuff, which is something definitely people have been asking for. And it looks like the Dungeon Delver's Guide that is coming out is going to be the same thing, but diving specifically into dungeons, which is great. And so they have this idea called NODES, which is actually an acronym for Novelties, Obstacles, Discoveries, Escalations, and Set Pieces. And it is a framework for building kind of an interesting dungeon for probably a, a one-shot sort of thing. So, you know, you create novelties. What's is something interesting about this place? And, and how does it work? What, you know, light, violation of laws, grand scale, dizzying depths. You got all examples for all these obstacles, non-combat challenges that block your way forward, locks, puzzles, traps, things like that discoveries, treasure, social interaction, good things, things that you want. Escalation, dangers, monsters, boss fights, things like that. And set pieces, right? Big topic, big boss fights, that kind of thing. What I what what I thought was interesting about this, this is style. So, you know, I like frameworks. I think frameworks are good. I think that, you know, you, you can kind of look at them and pick the framework that you want. I think it's great for third-party publishers to put out stuff like this. I, I That's what I do, right? Like I write, re, I wrote Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master in all my books because I said, I don't expect everyone in the world will like this style, but I think there are some people that will. And I think we can be in third-party products. We can be more opinionated than core books. There's a lot of people who say that like Wizards of the Coast should have had better rules for doing dungeon delving in the Dungeon Master guide and there's lots of complaints about the dungeon masters guide but that's one of them and i don't think they need them i think it would be fine if they offered optional rules for it right and say oh if you want to run dungeon delving in a more streamlined fashion here's how you could do it but if they made that like the core rules like people some people would want well guess how many other people say oh i don't like to run it that way i want to run it this other way so third-party publishers can be very opinionated like dungeon world is a very opinionated rpg os os old school essentials is a very opinionated rpg right and Mjorkberg is a very opinionated RPG. That's great. But the core books don't need to be that way, right? Because they need a wider audience and we can always build opinionated stuff on top of it. So I think this is great. Like they're a third-party publisher. They're producing a Dungeon Delver's Guide. I'm definitely going to pick it up and I think it's great to have it. What I thought was interesting is how this is similar to what John Four came up with, the idea of five-room dungeons, which is a very popular framework as well. Very similar sort of idea. Right. And the idea of a five room dungeon, let's see if he's got him here, is that you can take this model and you can build, you can sort of reflavor it with whatever your dungeon is, but it builds it on a story like arc, right? Instead of building a dungeon as like, you know, by thinking about it, like what are all the rooms and what are all in all the rooms? It's saying there's a certain pace to a game that's fun. And we're going to build the dungeon around that pace that you have an entrance and a guardian. It's either trapped or hidden or requires a key or has a monster. Then you have like a puzzle or role-playing challenge. You can see what this is comparable to the, to the, to the delve system, right? You have a trick or setback, something that kind of pushes them back. You have a climax, a big battle or a conflict. You have your set piece fight and you have your reward revelation. You go into the final treasure room, you pick up your treasure. And it's really interesting because if you think about like, I've been playing a lot of Elden Ring 
right? And in Elden Ring, they have these mini dungeons. And the way that sometimes the mini dungeons, these very small dungeons, is that you have to find it first. Then you have to like make your way in. Sometimes you have to use a key to get inside. Then you have like a big boss fight and then you find a treasure at the end, right? And it's really like this streamlined thing. It's fun to do. You know, it's mirrored all over the place. And, and that works fine, right? That's definitely an approach. The idea of building your dungeon. Again, it's a framework. People like it. It works. Uh, John Four and I actually did a series of videos. I'll link to it. Uh, if you want all four uh, videos in the series, we did a whole bunch of video series of he and I talking about the different styles that we have for game prep. And we put them together. Yeah, the link, the link for this. And he has his ultimate guide to five room dungeons. There's a great big book, by the way. You can get it for free. If you sign up for his newsletter, you can find a link to this article in the show notes below. All the links for all this stuff is in the show notes below. So he and I talked about our different approaches for this thing, right? And, and how they kind of work because I don't, I'm not, I'm not, my, my style is not to build the arc in your prep of like a five room style. My style is to try to build an environment out and then give yourself the variables to make the feeling of the different rooms change while you're running it. So that, you know, we, we talked about this in our show. So we have four different episodes of the show that John four and I did. We did this, I think a little bit more than a year ago. And the first one is free. You could just get it. One of them you get by subscribing to John four's email list. One of them you get by subscribing to my email list. And one of them you get, or I'm sorry, one of them you get by subscribing to both our email lists. And then the other two you get by subscribing to each of our Patreons. So you can see them all. Patrons of both get all four videos, right? We talk about like, how do you run heists? How do you build these style of heists? We talk about the, the five room dungeons. That's five room versus situation based dungeon delving is something we talked about. Really fun conversation. And it really, you can use a lot of ideas from both. But that idea of the, that idea of the node system really caught my eye and again it looks really cool so i'm like oh that was the wrong link i thought that was really interesting i'm i'm interested to see it paul is a really good designer i love what he did with the monstrous menagerie and i'm excited to see how this looks and i'm excited to pick up the book so the dungeon delver's guide will be coming out soon we'll probably do a we'll probably do a spotlight on it when it shows up almost certainly so check that out you can check out that article link is in the show notes and so my my style is different and my style is like build you know have the components on the table in front of you to build situations and you can that arc still works but you don't know when it's going to work that way so last week, I talked about revealing NPC archetypes. This was a, you know, kind of a, a thought process. One of the things I like to do on this show is think through DM tips instead of just offering advice, which I do in other videos and I certainly do in articles and stuff like that. I like to think about it a little bit. Talking is thinking for me. Writing is thinking for me. But also getting feedback from people is a part of that process as well. And I got some really good, important feedback about revealing NPC archetypes. So the idea here that I had was if you have a popular character from fiction that you are using as a model for an NPC in your game, should you tell your players who that model was? Do you say like, this dude's exactly like Hagrid from Harry Potter. He's a great big giant, but he's a very friendly dude. He's got a little parasol that he carries around. And you're like, is that Hagrid, right? There's one really important point with that though. So the question was, is that good? Do you want to tell people, hey, it's just like Hagrid from Harry Potter, right? Or it's just like John Connor, or it's just like Reese from Terminator, right? Whatever, you, you pick an NPC, or you pick a character archetype that you like, and you, you put them into your game and you tell the players, right? Or do you not? Or do you just keep the archetype in your head? You use it. Maybe they figure out who it is. Maybe not. I'm leaning more towards the idea of not telling the players. And the re there's one big reason why. And that's not all your players might know who you're talking about. And now you've just alienated some of your players, right? So if I say, oh, this guy's just like Mr. Morden from Babylon 5, there might be half the people at the table who are like, I have no idea who you're talking about, right? And I was like, it's no help to them at all. And the other players are like, oh, Mr. Morden. Yeah, I hate that guy. And now you've just put this wedge in between your players of the people who know who it is and the people who don't. And you're not about to spend an hour talking about this guy, right? Like if I tell you Mr. Morden from Babylon 5, I don't know how many of you know who that is, 
right? Probably not a lot. I don't know how many it is. So I think it's probably easier to just hold the archetype back and maybe the players figure it out. Say, this guy's just like Mr. Morden. And you could be like, yeah, it kind of is, right? But maybe not. That way the players can choose their archetypes. And so the other, there are other times where people will think it's a character that they know and it's not. And you didn't even know of that character, but now they've got a model in their head for the NPC that works for them. So it, I think it can work better to not tell players who the archetype is. They can build one if they want. They could figure it out if they want, but you don't have to tell them. You don't, and, and by not telling them, you're giving the player the freedom to put that in. It also doesn't break the cognitive dissidence of thinking about Babylon 5 when they should be thinking about D&D. I'm leaning more towards the idea of not, I think it was an interesting idea, but I'm leaning towards the idea of not revealing NPC archetypes. A, because you don't want to throw a wedge in between your players who know who it is and who doesn't. And, and B, that you kind of break in the cognitive dissonance of, of them connected to their NPC. So I think it's an interesting thing. And again, you know, we can always try it, right? The nice thing is you can do it with one NPC. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And you're, what are you out? Not much. You're not going to ruin a game because of this. So it's not, it's not, that, it's not that big a deal. And it, you can still try it out and see if you like it. But I don't think... I, you know, I don't think it's like a strong Sly Flourish recommendation, right? Oh, you should reveal your NPC archetypes. I don't think so. I don't, I mean, I don't make strong recommendations like that on just about anything. But the big one to me is, is I think there's good reasons why it doesn't work. It can work. Maybe you should give it a shot, right? Maybe try it out. But I'm probably going to lean against it, right? I think I've tried it. I experimented with it. I talked about it. I got, I got good feedback from people in the comments and feedback, the comments form from the last video. And they brought up good points. Like what happens when your players don't know who it is? And that's a really good question. So I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, talk more about that. I thought that was an important thing to follow up on. I also wanted to follow up on another thing that we talked about last, last week, which I do think has, I've been thinking a lot about it. I wrote an article about, I started an article on it last night. I wrote about six or 700 words on a future Sly Flourish article slash newsletter. By the way, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter and get email to your inbox every week with new articles in the show notes below. Subscribe and you get a free adventure builder PDF and you will get all of the Sly Flourish articles emailed straight to your inbox. And you can unsubscribe at any time. So I've been thinking about this and I think that I've, I've been very much enjoying the thought process. I think that this is a great thought exercise. I've enjoyed doing it. I've enjoyed talking about it. I've enjoyed researching it. I've enjoyed writing about it. And I think it's probably one that's valuable for everybody else. I think it's a very positive, a very positive thought exercise, which is what does a near perfect game look like? And I'm, I'm you know, I'm getting rid of the near perfect 10, right? We're just going to say near perfect games, right? So what does a near perfect game look like, right? When you think back to games that you've run, which ones would you say? Well, that was as close. That was that was pretty close to perfect. Why do you not say perfect? And you don't say perfect because none of none of them are perfect, and we're all perfectionists. So we're all thinking like, oh, I'll never have a perfect game, right? Some other person's probably having a perfect game, but not me. So we go, okay, fine. We'll get past your little block that you can't have a perfect game, and we'll say near perfect game. Like you know, really, what what are the near perfect games you ran? And we talked about it last time, and I I put down some examples that I thought up. I was trying to think about, well, what does a near-perfect game mean to me, right? What are the things that I look at and say, oh, this is, you know, a near-perfect game often has these criteria. And one of them is the players are all engaged most of the time. Perfect, yeah, near-perfect, not always. Sometimes they go to their phone, whatever. But generally speaking, the players are engaged in what's going on in the game. The players walk away excited for what happened. They were like, wow, that was a really good game. I really enjoyed it. And they're excited about what's going to happen. Man, I can't wait till next week till we do the whatever, right? That is, uh, to me, a sign of a near-perfect game. The characters have agency to make meaningful choices, right? They they make choices in front of them. They enjoy the process of finding those changes. They make an, an impact in the story. They, they have an actual impact in the story. You're not just going on an amusement park ride. Every character had an opportunity to shine both mechanically in the story. You know, every, everybody had that kind of 
time in the spotlight, both from a standpoint of cool things her character could do and from things that they and things that they mean something to them from a from a story perspective. The pacing of the game worked, right? The, the pacing moved on. It was exciting. Everybody was engaged. It, it, it knew when to slow down at moments where people needed to rest. It knew when to scope up when things needed to move on. I think that that really helps. And that when the story and the direction of the game goes in an interesting direction, no one could have predicted, right? That those to me are like, good criteria for what a near perfect game can feel like right and i i still i still stand by those i've been i'm i'm playing with them in my article and everything i'll have more so i was thinking about it more and last week i ran a game i ran a, a witchlight game on wednesday night and one of the things that helped is i had a brand new player who hadn't really played a lot of dnd he knew how to play i had the opportunity to play for him and because he was a new guy who I had not played with before, I was a little bit more energized because like I want it to be a good game, right? For this, for the person like my other players, man, they, we play for 10 years. If I have a bad game, you know, they'll forgive me. This guy's never played with me before. So, you know, I want to, so I, I had amped it up a little bit. I could tell that I was amping things up a little bit. I bet the other players like, wow, Mike's really on fire tonight because of this guy, right? So I was amped up a little bit and lots of fun things. I really had a fun, strong start in that game. I introduced his character in a, in a way that I thought was really kind of fun, which was his character got had previously been swallowed by a giant toad. So then they went up and had a belching contest with the toads, which was improvised, right? I didn't know they were going to have a belching contest, but I was like, and then one of them belched and vomited out the, the guy's character. And that's how the character was introduced. And they thought that everybody thought that was really funny. So that kind of get everybody in the right thing. That was right, right in a strong start. But I also had lots of scenes in there that I had been really looking forward to showing off. Things that I really really, really wanted. I had an NPC interaction. I was really excited to introduce. I thought it was really going to be fun. It was essentially revealing that a character that they're talking to, this is a little bit of a spoiler, the character that they were, that they were, there's a particular character that they're seeking and they found a bunch of her stuff. And one of the things they found was a statue to a demon prince and the statue to the demon prince is holding a sending stone. And everyone's scared to death of this statue and scared to death of the sending stone. But somebody has the guts to go over and pick it up. At which point the demon prince is like, hey, babe, how's it going? Right. And she, they're like, oh, and he goes, this isn't so-and-so. No. How'd you get this number? Right. And it was this hysterical, like prank dialing a demon prince. Right. Hysterical scene. And I had been looking forward to running this for a few weeks. I knew I was going to do it. And I was looking forward to running it. And it was very funny from an inter NPC interaction standpoint. It was, it revealed a major secret, right? It revealed a, a secret that really mattered. And it had like a lot of suspense. Cause like when they saw the statue, three of the people had like stress effects that dropped them on the floor. One person like had a heart attack, right? Just by looking at the statue. And next thing you know, they're talking to the person like, hey, hey, what's up? You know, how'd you get this number? Right. Really funny stuff. Right. And one of the characters is like hitting on him. Right. One of my, one of the other characters is like, oh yeah. Hey, how's it going? He's like, not bad. How are you? It's like, oh good. Yeah. And it was, you know, I kind of like him. Right. And everyone else was like, oh, my god right demon prince i don't know he's an okay guy you know and it was hysterical right it was just so that interaction was great combat was great right really fun really fun battles lots of things scary things i had catablepuses one of my favorite npc or favorite monsters which are like death cows cows that'll kill you by looking at you really fun so i just it nailed a lot of things and and part of it was like having things that were really fun and really interesting prepared, but also lots of room for improvisation. So the idea that they're having a belching contest with a bunch of giant toads, I had no idea they were going to do that. And then, and then having one of the toads vomit forth the, the character that they had not seen, right, was great. So that, that was a big part of it. So, so when I was thinking, that, so I had this in mind of like what makes a, perf a near perfect game and, and like, 
and I'm seeing it happening at the table. And then they're like, well, how do we identify that criteria? There was a Reddit thread, actually, that I, that I, I like to lurk around in the D&D Next and the D&D, the DMs Academy Reddits. They're, they're great. Sometimes they're not. Many times they're okay. And they had a thread on, on Reddit. And the thread was, what part of G- DMing gives you the greatest pleasure was the name. And what I found interesting is that the responses to this, the most popular responses were very similar to what makes a perfect D&D game, which is a little interesting. And so I, I recorded some of the, or I wrote down some of the top ones that they brought up. And they said, when the players are so into the moment that their, their emotions rise to the front, they're sad. You know, I, I remember my wife told me one time that she was in tears about something that happened in the game in a good way, right? Like her, she was feeling the emotions her character was feeling. And I'm like, that was awesome, right? It was actually the Anthony Joyce and Justice Armand introduction to Descent into Avernus called The Fall of Elturel, right? And the way I described the fall of the, the big sphere, which was a patron of one of the characters, you know, got her teary eyed, right? And I was like, that's, you know, getting emotion like that is great. Right. So finding their emotions up front when I finally get to reveal a big secret or plot twist. Yeah. And that's tricky. It's hard to do because sometimes they'll discover it ahead of time, but sometimes not. And how to put up enough information that they, they it's obvious to them after the fact, but before they never would have figured out that's really hard to do. But my thing with the demon prince worked really well when a player wants to talk about the campaign, even outside of the session is always good. Right. When the players live in the world by interacting with NPCs when they don't even have to. When I, when, I, when I get to shut my mouth, since the players are so engaged in talking to each other in character, that happens a fair bit of time in my games, and I really enjoy that too. I love to sit back and just sort of watch them do it. When something happens that I didn't plan or expect, that is a really big one, right? When the, table's, when, uh, the table-wide cheer that goes up on a natural 20, when a hard enemy goes down, right? And as a DM, we can really hang on to that, you know? Embrace the critical hits of your players, right? Be, I, I feel sad when my monsters make their saving throws. I want them to fail, right? I, I put them out there and I'm running them, but I want them to fail. I want the characters to enjoy beating the hell out of these guys, right? I think that there's lots of ways we can sort of set the stage for this kind of thing. Like what are the things that we can do to, to during our prep to make sure that we're offering these sort of circumstances. And it's, you know, I, I don't I don't want to keep falling into the same groove. I want to think about this from a different angle. But there are things like having a strong start, you know, making sure your pacing is good, building situations instead of scenes, right? Instead of having like a list of scenes you know are going to play out a certain way. It's far more interesting to build a platform and to build a situation and then say, make hard choices, you know, offer hard choices and see what they do right? That is so much more rewarding. I find it so much more rewarding, but it means you don't know what direction the game is going to go, right? I bring back my Numenera game where the game jumped 14 months in the future. I had no idea it was going to happen, but it was one of the best games I ever ran, one of the best RPGs I ever ran. I-, I enjoyed it thoroughly. The players enjoyed it thoroughly. It completely changed the story. I think it really grabbed the players and locked them into this adventure because they're like, this thing happened and they know that there's no way I could plan it, right? It was fantastic. So, Building, you know, doing your prep so that things can happen in the game that you don't expect, I think is a big part. I think there's a lot of others looking at the character sheets, knowing what, what's cool for them mechanically and what's cool for them as a character. What are, they, what are they excited about as a character in the story? And what are they excited about mechanically? And something I want to do in my Numenera game. I want to say like, hey, you guys reached tier four. What new abilities did you pick up? What are, what are some of the things you're really excited to do, right? And write that down and then use that, right? So lots of stuff like that, strong starts, secrets and clues, you know, lots of ways that we can pave the road to a, to a near perfect game, right? And what, what are those things? And no one gets to decide it for you, 
right? You, you get to decide what those are. You can look at your games that you look back on and say, those are near perfect games. I love those games. And think about why they were near perfect and what you can do to help set the stage. And a lot of it is the players, right? You can have, I'm not, I'm not saying all of the responsibility for running a near perfect game lies on the DM because the reality is a lot of it relies on the players and what they're bringing to the table too. To players that are tired and not engaged, it's not going to be a perfect game. What players bring really matters too. But we, but as DMs, we can still look at the, look at the, what we're setting up, right? Look at what we're doing when we're getting ready to run our games and say, are the things that we are preparing is the way that we're setting up the game lending itself to running a near perfect game? Are we putting the kinds of things in our prep? Are we putting the kinds of things that we want in what we're about to drop on the table? Is that stuff leading us towards a near perfect game if the players bring everything and if things go a certain way? And the answer might be like, most of the games are good. They're fine. They're great, right? They're sevens out of 10, right? Eights out of 10. But are they near perfect? Probably not. But some of them will be. And some will be because the players are engaged. And I like to think, you know, I like, I hope, right, that looking at this from this other angle still leads to kind of the same kind of prep that we've been doing, which is what are the eight steps, right? We focus on the characters because we know that matters. We know a lot of these things. If you look at these examples, if you look at the, the list, a lot of them are like, know the characters and offer them things, right? We build, the, you know, the way in, in, in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master is we don't, we don't build individual scenes that are all locked in. We don't build fixed encounters, right? We build flexible, we, we prepare the stuff we need to keep us flexible so that wherever the game goes, we're ready. We know what monsters in the area. We know what the location looks like. We know what NPCs are around. We know what treasure is around. We know what secrets can be discovered, right? We know all of these things and then we drop them in the right places. There's a reason why secrets and clues are not focused and fixed on specific things. And it's because that might not happen. But if they're abstract from certain things, they can happen either way, right? You have the secret, you know what can be revealed. You get to choose how, right? You can improvise, right? I didn't know about the belching contest with the giant toads. I did know one of the giant toads swallowed the guy, but I didn't know how it was going to come out, right? And then it came out belching contest. So like, this was awesome. This is perfect. Thank you so much, right? Like the player brought that up and I was like, this is awesome, right? It's hysterical. We can, we can think about, it. I don't know what's going to happen when they pick up the sending. I really hope they pick up the sending stone. I don't know what happens when they pick up the sending stone and talk to a demon prince. I don't know how that's going to go. I know what the demon prince wants, right? And I know what the situation is. And now I'm going to see, I'm going to see what they do right? So it could be really cool. I think it's a worthy thought. I think in overall, I think this is a worthy thought exercise. I think that it is really interesting to think about what, a, and, and it's a, to me, it's a positive exercise, right? This is one that helps us get out of the self-doubt, right? I think we're often filled, DMs are often filled with self-doubt. We often think like, oh God, I'm being, either I'm being silly. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm 49 years old and I'm making funny noises right? when I, when I talk about giant toads, you know, giant, giant toad belching contest. So we can get past, I think, a lot of the self-doubt we have if we focus on the positive stuff and thinking about like what makes perfect games, games we played in, games we've run in, what, what are those criteria? And then how do we set up the situation to have that happen as often as possible? To me, feels like a really valuable positive thought exercise. You know, it's optimistic. It's, it, it, it gets us thinking. We get past the self-doubt of I'll never run a perfect game you know, let that go, right? Pass that on. Think about in your, what's the be, some of the best games you've run. What were they like? What were the criteria? What were the things that made them way? And how do you set up the environment? How do you set up your prep? How do you, how do you prepare? How, you know, how do you, how do you till the earth to plant the right plants? I don't know if this metaphor is working at all, right? What can you put on the table that's going to help make a game as perfect as it can be as often as you can do it, right? And I think I think it's a really fun exercise. I like it. I'm I'm very I'm certainly going to write an article about it. I'm very likely to shoot another video where I focus on this and and offer some more concrete 
thoughts and concrete tips about this in the future. But I really like talking about it. If you're watching this video and this gets you, it, it makes you think about it, I would love to see your list, right? What is your list? Here's your here's your homework. Sly Flourish, Lazy Dungeon Master Show, Lazy DM, Lazy D&D Talk Show homework. Send me a comment. All right, put a comment on YouTube. You can send me an email too. That works great. However you want to get it to me. What are, what's your list of things that make a near perfect game, both as a player and as a DM? What is your list? What does that look like? right? I would love to see it. I'm very interested in that. So please, please, if you would add that comment, tell me what you think a near perfect game looks like. What are the criteria that make a near perfect game? And if you want a little extra credit, what are the things that you do during your prep that you think helps prepare for a near perfect game? What are the things that you do that lead towards that? I'll ask, you can leave the funny ones out. I know you're very funny. So joke, you can, you can keep the joke ones. Tell your friend. Right. But I'm, I'm interested in the real and the real stuff. So thank you for that. Let us talk about the remainder of our June, 2022 Patreon questions. Every month I put up a new thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon for patrons of Sly Flourish to ask me any question they want about D and D, right? Anything about D and D, anything about DMing. And I answer all of them on Patreon. Some of them I take and I talk about on this show. Other ones I will turn into articles or videos, videos of my own. And we cover them on the show and we are going to cover the remainder. We don't have that many. So we're going to hammer through and cover the remainder of the questions for June, 2020. Josh P, what are your suggestions for handling sessions when they're falling flat at the table in the middle of a session? I recently had a session where at the table, the players weren't digging what was happening. We had just finished up an adventure arc. The characters were starting to do investigation into the next adventure, but only one player was driving forward and the other two were on their phones. At the time, I just kept focusing on the player who was engaged, but I feel that there was more I could have done. I don't know that, I mean, you, you described a little bit of the situation that where, where this occurred and, and it's possible. I'm not going to say this is the case because I wasn't there. If uh, players can definitely disengage, they can definitely break away if they don't know what they should be doing right? They don't know what even what options exist. One of the trouble, one of the hard parts of running downtime sessions in D&D games, which is a really fun thing when it works well, but a hard part is that they don't know what they should be doing, right? And this is where I think it's really important to make sure that we reiterate what options are available. Even if they're the ones that came up with the options originally, we can take note of them and we can remind them. You find yourself at this crossroad and you now have a few options. You can go to the, 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 the dungeon underneath the old ruined tower. You can go try to go through the town and investigate who you think the, the traitor is in the king's court. Or you can go work on building your magic item or whatever, right? Whatever the options are, you reiterate them. And they can always come up with other ones. But it helps to articulate what those options are. And particularly when you hit like the end of a session and the conclusion sort of ended there and they don't know what they're doing next. Definitely people are going to go. It also like, it sounds like if you had like a big conclusion to an arc, they're taking a break, right? The players are like, hey, we just finished that thing. Let's take a break. So, so that, that can happen, right? It depends on falling flat. They just might needed some time off. So don't, you shouldn't be too hard on yourself. If you're engaged with one player and that one player is engaged and everyone else is like, that's fine. Unless they're like, wow, that was boring as hell right? Like if they're really not engaged, but sometimes people just need a break, right? And, and pacing, pacing can matter. So a lot of times when, when a session is falling flat, there's a few things you can do. You can, for the players who aren't engaged, you can, you can address them directly and ask them like what they think of the current situation or what they think of the current options. And it'll kind of draw them back in again. You can always have like four knolls show up, right? Four knolls, angry knolls show up, knolls of ye and start killing villagers, 
right? Like make a scene that's exciting. Make something that happens. Like that, that idea of like, almost, you know, you can do a strong start in the middle of a session, right? And what's a, a have an event occur. The Dungeon Master's Guide has a, a, a big framing events table. Take a look at the framing events table and drop one of those in. The Lazy DM workbook has events that could be occurring in towns. Drop one of those in. Waterdeep City Encounters on the DM's Guild. Fantastic book of encounters for cities. The huge random tables haven't have something occur maybe during your prep think of what are a few i know that there's going to be this moment of downtime what are a few different random events that might occur and just jot down a few of them six of them right pick six things that might happen but you know a lot of times just something something needs to blow up right i go back to like stephen king and the stand i think i've mentioned this before stephen king i'm reading rereading the stand right now and stephen king wrote the stand and he's like he's reading this book he's writing this book it's thousand thousand pages right and he's like 500 pages in he's like i've got like 37 main characters and no clear arc and he was like if i had if i was only a couple hundred pages in, i'd have thrown it away but i'm so far in i can't get myself to just throw this all away but i don't know what to do and he went out for a walk he's walking around he's like i've got it i'll blow it up and he literally had a bomb blow up and kill like 17 characters and he only had four left. And then he sent them on a big quest, right? Like a Lord of the Rings style quest. And you know, so what can you blow up, right? Think about Waterdeep Dragon Heist, right? Waterdeep Dragon Heist is this whole adventure. You have the whole thing where you're rescuing a guy and then you have a chapter that's basically downtime stuff, running around town, doing stuff. And then a fireball blows up in the town that the characters are in and that moves them right back in again. That, you know, I'm not super crazy about that adventure, but that, works the fireball really works and the fireball is your dial to say people are bored time to turn on the dial so josh i hope that helps benjamin c says do you have any suggestions for players wasting abilities or spells in a recent one shot a bard uh, player wanted to cast stinking cloud against a room full of various devils who are immune to poison she was thrilled to have such a cluster of enemies she could hit all at once after winning initiative only to have the wind taken completely out of her sails by their immunity so yes there's a couple things one you can forget about their immunity if you really think it's cool, just selectively forget about the fact that they are immune to poison. If you think it's interesting that they're immune to poison, if you think that that's information that the characters can learn and that matters, you know, then then you could have that play out. You could also have the character make a check or one of the other characters make a check or all of the characters make a check for them to think like maybe these guys might not be fully susceptible to poison like you think they are. And before they cast a spell so they don't waste it. Because I can tell you on the player side, it's definitely a drag if you just didn't know and you threw it out there and it turned out they're immune to poison you could turn immunity to resistance so they don't appear to take as much damage from the poison the other thing about stinking cloud is it still obfuscates them right it still means that nobody can see they can't see anybody nobody can see them so it still has that effect as well but you know if you're leaning towards the players sometimes it's just cooler to have that work and you don't have to play with them if you find an ability there are other monsters that have abilities that just suck right? You have other abilities that you look at and you're like, that's so boring, right? So just make them, just remove it, right? If it's cool, go with cool, right? And go ahead and have it. So the two ways, as far as generally speaking, a wasting abilities is you might try to find a way to warn the players that they're not, that it's not going to work, right? That they're, again, would the character know? Sometimes it's, it's just wasted and they learn a lesson, right? And sometimes you look at it and you gotta go like, look, you just tried to fireball a fire elemental. What did you think would happen? But sometimes they're not thinking. And sometimes you just say, it is a fire elemental. Your character isn't sure that fire is gonna work against it, right? Or again, everybody roll an arcana check or an intelligence check and add your arcana bonus. And whoever the highest is, like you're pretty sure fireball's not gonna work on them. Hey, don't waste a fireball on these guys, right? So I think you can do things like that. But other times, if it's not clear that somebody would be immune and you think it's lame, 
ask yourself which is cooler, having the ability or not having the ability. And if it's cooler for them not to have the ability, just, you know, turns out poison works on them. Chris W. says, if someone had given me the player's handbook and I wanted to get into DMing, but some disaster had befallen Watsi and only third-party content was available, what would be your suggestions for the first few books to buy instead of the Watsi ones? I mean, the, the answer is even if a disaster befalls Watsi, we still have our books, but I, I, I know what you mean because we can buy second edition D&D books today. You can go buy first edition. You can buy the Rules Cyclopedia. I just, I bought one just like a few months ago. What would I buy? So I, I really like the Level Up 5e stuff. I, I like what N-World has done with Level Up 5e. I think the Monstrous Menagerie is great. I would probably pick up the Monstrous Menagerie. I bet you that MCDM's Flea Mortals is going to be really good too. I would probably pick that up. I would say, I, I love the Cobalt press monster books too they don't have the generic monsters in them that a normal book would have obviously to me the big one are monster books right you're, you're really going to want monster books but you know i a lot of the stuff that i've talked about in the past cobalt press makes wonderful products i would definitely look at their stuff if you want really high power stuff 2c gaming has stuff i have a whole article that i will link to in the show notes below of notable third-party products as of february there have been some new ones and i haven't updated it yet but i've done a lot of talk about different third-party books that i really like and why i like them and why i would bring them in here you can check out this article it will be in the show notes below. There are new stuff. You could look at previous talk shows where I've talked about other third-party products since then, but those are really the, the ones that grab me, that, that grab me the most. Victor N says, I'm noticing some inconsistency in the improvised statistics you posted and published. In the Lazy DMs companion, you suggest hit points equals 20 times CR, but in a tweet on June 19th, you suggest hit points is 15 times CR. In both examples, you mentioned ACDC as 12 plus half CR, but Uncovered Secrets Volume 1, it was 10 plus half CR. Are you continuing to update these guidelines based on experience, or are these just mistakes? Thanks for calling me out, Victor. No, I kid. So I would say, so, you know, I believe in the dials, right, which means you get to turn them. What is, so Uncovered Secrets Volume 1, I did not update with the stuff that's in the companion. So the companion is more up to date than Uncovered Secrets Volume 1. That's definitely, that's definitely the case. Let's take a look. I like I, I like this one because it lets me show off my book, so I don't mind. And I'm I'm and you know I have no ego. I don't want to say I have no ego, but my my ego can handle problems. And when I make mistakes, I want to solve them. And and I have. There are parts of the Lazy DMs Companion that actually update stuff in the Lazy DMs Workbook because I don't really use what's in the workbook anymore, right? And so that that definitely is the case. But let's look at I think in the tools for improv right in the beginning. Yeah, so. AC is 12 plus half CR. DC is 12 plus half CR. Attack bonus is three plus half CR. You could increase this to four plus half CR and it'd probably be okay. I think this is probably just a touch, a touch low. I think four, four actually matches the AC and DC better, right? So you could increase this to four plus half CR and that, that's probably a better attack bonus. Seven damage times CR works pretty well right? It's, it works pretty well. Saving throw bonus, you could also do four plus half CR. So you could increase this by one. And hit points are 20 times CR. It's probably a little high, right? So fit the, the, if you, uh, Paul Hughes, on, 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 who wrote The Monstrous Menagerie and also has Blog of Holding, he, he suggested 15 plus 15 times CR, which is close enough to 20-ish. But you could actually do 15 times CR and it would, and it would work pretty, pretty well. So I'm always continually updating. I think in a future product, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to update this even a little bit more, make it four plus half CR instead of three plus half CR. The answer is it still works, right? It's close enough, right? And if, you, and if you round up on this one, it's the same. But it's a little tricky. So attack bonus could go up by about one, right? Like any, any creature that's under, that's, that's CR one half or less is probably a plus four to hit. 
is about right. It's rare to find monsters that are less than that. Damage is about right. And then AC and DC 12 plus half CR are also about right. That might be actually a little high for things that are below one CR, right? You know, or, or that, that 12 is, it can be high. There are definitely creatures that have like tens and stuff like that. So you have to wing it a little bit. But the reason why they are the way they are is like, it's really tight. Do they still work? Yeah. And any of the ones work. I, I did run some monsters. I homebrewed like a CR five. And I was like a CR five monster with a hundred hit points was a lot of hit points for the characters to get through. And I just dialed it down. I just turned the, the hit point dial down and it worked fine. So again, if you take this and you, and you work with the dials of monster difficulty, I think that that can, that, that will make a big difference as well. Right. And, and things like damage, obviously when you get to higher CRs, you're not going to have one attack that does 70 points of damage, right? You're going to have multiple attacks and split the damage up against multiple attacks, but that, and that, that damage amount probably could go up when they get above CR 10 to 15, 10 to 20, right? You could probably increase it to like 10 times CR. It'd be a lot of damage, right? Monsters, you know, if you have a CR 15 creature doing 150 points of damage around, it's a lot of damage, but I think, I think that is appropriate. So yeah, so I tweaked it a little bit. The main thing is, yeah, the uncovered, the ones in uncovered secrets are, prob are are certainly out of date. That was certainly too low. 12 plus half CR is definitely right. And the attack bonus is probably four more than three. So Victor, thanks for the question. And it's always good to keep me in check. Alex S says, what are your thoughts on digital versus analog character sheets in person for in-person play? I've been discussing with my players the benefits and drawbacks of switching to a completely analog character sheet. DD Beyond and other resources offer a lot of speed, but bulky laptops take up a lot of space. People using smaller devices are tempted to disengage. I grew up playing first, second and third, and I remember the novelty of leveling up at the table with everyone passing around. Is this blind nostalgia or is there something to running an analog game? It's for you, this is a good question for you in the group, right? Talk to the players. I would, I would certainly discuss it with the players before I'd mandate anything, but I might push them to paper so i am running two different cobalt press uh, midgard campaigns probably in my next two campaigns and i want them to use midgard character options i want them to have those available and they're not in dnd beyond so i'm going to recommend to them if you you know i'm going to recommend to them you might consider doing character sheets with pencil and paper like the old days again because we're gonna we, we're gonna have these other options available and they're not going to be in beyond and stuff like that but i know other people are just in love with dnd beyond and love it to death so I'm, I'm not i'm not the kind of dm that's going to force them one way or the other I might recommend it one way or the other. I might suggest one way or the other. But but I would let the I would probably let the players decide, right? I would probably let them let them choose. But boy, this is an issue. D&D Beyond is very sticky. I think this is something we're going to face a lot, which is D&D Beyond is very sticky. It is you know, and, and it's not a legal monopoly, right? But it's a big monopoly on on D D because it doesn't have any third party products in there. That is a big it's very advantageous for Wizards of the Coast, not so advantageous for 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 for, for users, right? For players. And I don't think it's gonna get fixed. I I don't I don't expect they're gonna allow third party stuff in there. So it means I think I think it's good to be comfortable with character sheets. We ran D fifth edition for years before D&D Beyond existed, right? It was like three or four years before D&D Beyond existed and people were playing just fine. So I'll give one tip, one, here's your sly flourish tip of the day for running paper character sheets that will revolutionize and make it so much easier to use paper character sheets. Write the reference number, write the page number down next to your abilities and spells and anything else so that you can reference it in the book quickly, right? talk to your players and, and, and push them. This is something you probably want to push them Write down when they pick a spell and they put it on their spell sheet, write down the page number of the spell. It makes things so much faster. Essentially turn your paper character sheet into an index of your book. 
so that for that character, it's an index of all the features that you have in the book. It's like hyperlinking in paper. It's a magical experience when you go like, oh yeah, stinking cloud, page 196. There's a, right? So much better than looking it up. So, and it doesn't take any extra work, right? It's very, when they pick a spell and they go, oh, I want that one. At that moment, write, ask them to write down the page number, right? Kind of push them a little bit to write down the page number. If they do that, I think it's way easier to run with a paper character sheet. And I think, I think people can do it. But yeah, I think it's a big question. I would only suggest talking about it with your players. Don't, don't, don't mandate it. Bastion says, currently running a Tyranny of Dragons campaign with five colleagues, but with work being busier, more travel, etc. the moment each session we manage to have two or three players max at a time. Any tips on how to get our game going? I've tried for a more side quest approach to avoid moving too much in the main storyline, but I feel a lack of big, uh, I feel I lack a bit of the grandiose, impactful adventures reaching level 10 soon. So you're pretty far into it. Run the story as, as if all the players are here, share some notes that they missed, but I, I hard to maintain in the long run. I fear that my players are going to miss out on the important beats of the story. So basically you're saying that a player, a lot of players are missing your sessions, right? Which is always tricky. And you could talk to the players, like maybe, you know, a hard one, right? And I never want to just say, oh, just get the, get more, get different players. But it is something where if you have people you're playing with and people aren't making it a lot, you might want to expand the group a little bit and try to bring people in that are going to be there more often. The other one is you can think about how you're structuring the game and try to make it more like a TV serial, right? Make it so that each session is its own little self-contained story. It has a beginning, middle, and end. It has a goal. You accomplish the goal and they're tied together. So like... Think about you're 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 running you know more episodes of Knight Rider than you are you know Lord of the Rings right It's like every session kind of begins at the you know, a place and it ends at a place. There's a there's a story that's going on in the background, but the story is almost more you know like a background. But yeah, we call these like episodic games, right? But the idea is that instead of doing it like I often do it, which is like the story, you know, I end in the middle of scenes, and that way I have a strong start. I know where it's going to go. But that doesn't work if I have players that are in and out a lot, right? And I've, I was talking to a good friend of mine about this, about like, you know, what do you do? Like, how does it feel on the player side? This is something I'm going to investigate more. We're probably going to talk about this on future episodes of the show. That like, how does it feel as a player when you know that something exciting is going to happen next session and you know you can't make it, right? And the answer is not great. It doesn't feel great. You feel, it feels kind of lame to know that you're not going to be there for whatever that event is. And the better it is, the stickier it is, which you want it to be as a DM, the worse they're going to feel for not making it. And that's not great, right? So sometimes you just kind of have to do that, right? If your game is like that, like my games, I, I expect players to be there for it, right? I expect, and I know they can't always, and I know that things happen, but I don't tune the game around who's going to be there. I don't, I don't say it's, there were times where I go, it's the, the arc is really about their character and they're not going to be here. So I'll change it. Or we're coming to a big conclusion. I want to make sure as many people are there. But if you wait for everybody to be at the table and you say like, well, not every, you know, Jack is out this week. So, so I don't want to run this week. Right. And the next week, oh crap, Jill's out next week. Right. You don't know if who's going to be out next week. So then who do you, who are you screwing? Like, you, you know, so the answer is you, I, I think you just kind of got to run forward. And I would run forward with the story. And then hopefully, like, you'll figure out what's engaging with the players anyway. So even if they're in and out, you can still catch them up with what's been going on. And they still feel each session itself is enjoyable enough that people are willing to come in. So I had a guy that would showed up for one session of my game last week. And, you know, I tried to make sure it was an exciting session just for him. 
from beginning to end. And I think it was. He seemed to, he seemed to enjoy it. So uh, Bastian, I hope that I hope that helps. It's a tough problem. Jason K says, "Would you share how you came up with the entries for your core adventure tables?" Oh, thank you. I ask him about my book again. And how you would suggest we personalize them to meet our individual campaign setting needs? Yes. Oh, will I? So we're talking about in the first chapters of the Lazy DMs Companion. And this is available in the preview. I will link to this. In the preview of the Lazy DMs Companion, which you get for free, has these core adventure tables. I'm very proud of them. I use them a lot. I I really like them. And they are essentially tables that you can run multiple times to come up with interesting things. And so his question is, well, how'd you come up with this stuff? So the answer is years years of practice, right? That I, I have put a lot of these items into a lot of different generators that I've been building since the original days of the original Lazy Dungeon Master. And I try to pick things that are that are typical to fantasy adventures. So like if you look at the locations, I try to say, what are the common locations where adventures often occur? What are 20 of those, right? I got really good at making lists of 20, right? I just, I'm, I mean, this book is packed. I don't know how many different things, how many different lists of 20 exist in here. It's a lot, right? And, you know, I would try to come up with them and then I would play with them often. I have 25 or 30 and I'd cut a few out that I knew weren't as strong as others. And I'm not saying everything in it is perfect, right? But a lot of the stuff, it's like I try to come up with common things that you would see typically in adventure, but then put them in the random list. So what are common monuments you might discover if you're going on an adventure? What are common locations? What are common descriptions? A lot of the conditions are tied directly to the conditions that exist in fifth edition, like radiant and, and radiant and fire and everything else. They're all tied to that. That way you can easily kind of throw in those, that kind of damage descriptions. You know, I looked at, I looked at different descriptions, origins. What are the origins that are common in, in, in D and D games, things like that quests. What are the very common quests? So, you know, a lot of iteration that occurred and, a, but a lot of, of, of looking back at how our adventures work, same thing with chambers, traps and hazards, you know, all these, all these kinds of things that I, that I wanted to pick up. What spell, work really well is either a trap or as a benefit or something tied to an item stuff like that and a key to these tables is that you can really grab from lots of different tables and and roll up really interesting things the idea of using spells as potential traps the idea of using spells as something you tie to a relic some a spell that might be tied to a to a, to a permanent magic item that they could do once a day Lots of different ways that you can use these tables. You can take the, the dungeon monsters one, right? This list of common monsters you'd find in dungeons that go from giant rats and the lower, the lower, the less powerful they are, all the way up to mummies. But you can say, we're going to roll on the condition and description and maybe even the origin and say we get oozing obsidian giant, giant rats even bigger giant rats, oozing of sitting giant. So you can roll on multiple tables. You can like, think about it. You go from, if you just take, if you take two of these columns, condition and description, right? Shadowed, haunted oozes, right? You went from 20 possible monsters to 400 possible monsters to 8,000 possible monsters with three columns. That's why I love joining columns together, right? Is that you can really say like, we have windswept, forgotten ghouls what does that even mean right i don't know you know windy ghouls so you can do lots of things like this so so that isn't really getting to like how did i come up with this stuff oh and then you asked a very important question which i'm totally ignoring which is how do you customize it which is very important and the way to customize it is add another column 
right? What are 20 factions in your game or 20 bits of history? I like factions, both historical factions and current factions. And I will write down that list of factions. I do this whenever I run a published game. As I was like, you know, if you'd, Icewind, if you'd pick like Icewind Dale, you could have all of the different tribes, the, the barbarian tribes. You could have all the different gods that are commonly worshiped there, all of the villains that exist in that area and add them to your own list. So factions are the big one. I would, I would add a faction table find 20 factions for your world, 20 factions for the area that the characters are in that are unique to your area. And then you can tie that. And now it's a car Kessel's tower, or it's the tribe of the bears mine, right? You can, you can, you can add in your factions into all these tables and, and tailor it around the, the adventure that you have. So that, that is my suggestion for, for adding that up. Adam G says, how do you determine what gear to start a party with when they're creating characters for above first level? I'm running a one shot based on your Blackwheeled article from Arcadia 16. Thank you so much, which I'm super excited about. Let me know how it goes. I'm very curious. Let me know if your players hate you at the end. And I'm, and I'm starting the players at level seven. I wanted to give them both mundane and magic equipment to match their level as tier two adventures, but I'm not exactly sure how to go about determining what I should let them pick or give, give them. So my easy way, so the Dungeon Master's Guide has a table. I think it's in chapter one in the adventures chapter with gold for starting at higher levels. Like what kind of equipment should they have for starting at higher levels? And it usually focuses on gold. I don't think it mentions treasure, but the easy way is to essentially give out a magic item per tier. So for above, and you can decide like how many at seventh level, I might give them probably what I would do. Cause I, I like my, my, my characters, especially in one shots to be a little bit underpowered, just a little bit underpowered. So I would probably give them one uncommon magic item of their choice right? They can look through the list and they can come up with one. They can pick any item they want, which is a benefit to them. And they can pick one uncommon magic item. And I would give them a rare item in tier three and a very rare item in tier four and a 20th level legendary item. So I wouldn't give them a lot of magic items, but because they're able to pick which ones they want, they get a better, you're going to have one that's really a good use for them. That's what I would do. I would, I would not give them a ton of magic items. You might get away, especially at seventh of giving them two. You could also say you can get one permanent magic item and two uncommon common disposable items to the consumable items, you know, and pick that, that one, that one can work. I hear that A5E has a whole table for recommendations of each class per tier. So uh, apparently level up 5E also has a system for this, but that's what I would do. I would, I would, you know, that you can, you can look at the con you can look at the tables inside the dungeon master's guide and it they have like tables by commonality. Here's the uncommon table, right? And say you can pick anything from this. So that's what I would do. And then as far as mundane items, as far as everything else, give them the gold value and tell them they can pick anything in the adventurous thing that they can afford. So that way they, you know, at seventh level, they could probably afford plate armor, right? And plate armor, I think is like the most expensive thing people really want, but that can work. I give them the gold and let them buy any of the things that they would want to buy. For, for potions, I would say they can't like carry more than four potions. So they can't have 36 healing potions, right? Say like, they're just, they're not available. They're, they're you know, they're not available that much. Adam, I hope that helps. So that is it. We have covered all of the June Patreon questions. I will, for patrons, I will send out a new thread next week where we start to collect questions for July. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things D&D. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter and get a free copy of an Adventure Generator PDF, but also get new articles sent to your inbox every week. You can support me directly on Patreon. You get the option to ask questions like these. You also get access to all kinds of exclusive material and exclusive videos and things like that. You can go to the Sly Flourish bookstore and pick up any of my books, or you can help me out by subscribing to this video right here on YouTube. Subscribe to my channel like the video and pass it along to your friends. So thank you all very much for hanging out with me today. I hope you had a good time and get out there and play some D&D. &D. Thank you very much.